the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the program. And uh, begin today with an apology. I I lead with uh, having to... uh, recognize mistakes. So we played this clip yesterday from uh, Kaylee McEnany's press briefing, White House Press Secretary McEnany's press briefing, where it appeared that and it sounded like a reporter after a terse exchange about uh, vote by a vote by mail election a reporter sounded like she said lying bitch to describe McEnany. Upon further review, you know, sort of an IBM, you make the call slowing it down. That was not what she said. And this is according to the White House transcript of the press briefing as well. OK, you don't want to engage is what she actually said. Man, it's weird how something could be. That's what she actually said when it sounded like the other phrase that I mentioned is what she said. And I also suggested it's being reported that it was Paula Reed from CBS News. And I said, you know, happy to correct that. It's just being reported as that uh, online as people are responding to this in real time. It turned out the reporter in question was a reporter for Al Jazeera named Kimberly Hulkett. So anyway, so uh, wrong on that one. Hedged a little bit when we reported it did sound like that's what was said. But apparently that was not what was said. And while the D.C. press corps deserves no benefit of the doubt, we still want to separate ourselves from them by being accurate and taking ownership of mistakes when we make them. So there you go. Uh, I want to begin the show by talking about uh, my sweet home, Chicago. Well, it used to be a suite. It's still my home, but it used to be sweet. Not so much after 15 people shot at a funeral on the south side of Chicago on Tuesday evening. 15 people. So uh, unsurprisingly, if you're not familiar with the details, the person who was being memorialized at the funeral was a gangbanger. So other gangbangers were at the funeral and rival gangs drive by the funeral, open fire. And then those gang members who were at the funeral return fire. And basically you have a shootout on the streets of the south side of Chicago with 15 people ultimately being shot. And by the way, the Chicago police had an idea this was possible. There was a police car stationed at the funeral, police officer stationed at the funeral, but obviously with that many people firing at each other, that one individual police officer was unable to stop the the violence. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, is obviously primarily concerned about this, right? Street gangs, Murder City, USA, the city that works you over, more than 420 murders, more than 2,000 shootings so far this year. Number of shootings, 3x that of New York, which has almost 3x the population of Chicago. So that's her primary concern, yeah? No. Primary concern is uh, making sure that the police are proactive to interdict this sort of violent crime, right? No. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox from Jesse Smollett infamy, making sure Kim Fox 
shuts down that revolving door for violent criminals at the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in the Cook County Criminal Courts, right? Nope. The problem, the only concern, is the federal law enforcement officers being dispatched, dispatched to Chicago by President Trump. We are not going to allow democracy to be hijacked by the federal government. That is not happening in Chicago. Democracy to be hijacked by the federal government. Sending federal law enforcement officers from agencies that routinely work with state and local law enforcement. I mean, this is not unprecedented to have DEA and ATF agents, federal prosecutors working with local law enforcement because they have expertise. They have a different scope of knowledge you know, that's more global, that can perhaps inform the, pro- the more parochial problems specific to Chicago. I-, I thought we want law enforcement to do like information sharing and collaboration. I thought that was the post 9-11 paradigm. Hmm. Nope. Uh, we're going to spin these yarns like are coming out of Portland that what you have are, uh, you know, Donald Trump, Banana Republic style goon squads disappearing law abiding, peaceable ref, uh, residents off the streets of our major cities. Utter nonsense. Democracy. She's worried about democracy. This is the same Lori Lightfoot who uh, said this just last week with respect to the prospect of reinstituting more stringent lockdown measures, COVID-19 related lockdown measures, if people don't comply with those already in place. Some of you have joked that I'm like the mom uh, who will tear in the car around when you're acting up. No, friends, it's actually worse. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out and I'm going to make you walk home. That's who I am. Yeah, that's who she is. So there's only one person doing a bad impersonation of a banana Republican small R dictator, and that's Lori Lightfoot. But you see, uh, you uh, have to have a boogeyman if you are going to misdirect attention away from yourself and your job performance, away from what's happening in your hamlet. You got to have somebody to blame, somebody to say, whoa, 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 whoa. So gangs aren't the problem. Neutering the police, not the problem. Cook County State's Attorney's revolving door for violent criminals in Chicago, not the problem. The problem is feds en route to Chicago. How many funerals do you think those federal agents are going to shoot up? Mayor Triple Threat. What do you think? Uh, On a similarly sarcastic vein, uh, our friend Larry Elder, a colleague as well, the great Larry Elder, who's up for uh, Radio Hall of Fame, and he should absolutely gain entrance. Uh, Larry Elder tweeted out, uh, Chicago funeral leaves at least 14 wounded. This after last weekend, which left 12 dead. How many Confederate generals were spotted leaving the scene of the crime? Exactly. Same idea. Misdirection plays. Don't look at me. Don't assess what I'm doing. Just listen to my tough talk and focus on who I'm telling you to focus on or what I'm telling you to focus on. And what was, by the way, Lori Lightfoot's response, as we talked about earlier in the week, to the uh, attacks on police over the weekend in Grand Park as vandals tried to pull down a Christopher Columbus statue. Good people on both sides. Good people on both sides. Effectively, that's what she said. Uh, Related stories, streets of Chicago, more local coverage you probably won't get nationally. Alyssa Blanchard is a CPS elementary school teacher, Chicago Public School elementary school teacher on the south side of the city. 
Uh, she was so traumatized after being carjacked at gunpoint last week outside her home. She's now scared to go outside. Forget COVID. Uh, Chicago police say a group of children ages 10 to 17, 10 carjacked Blanchard and at least 15 other people since late June, wreaking havoc on Blanchard's generally peaceful South Side neighborhood. So there you go. Now you've got your uh, clockwork orange carjacking set on the South Side, 10 to 17 year olds carjacking teachers because you've given the streets over to the mob and you're worried about federal agents coming to help. That's the real concern. Ted Cruz has introduced um, legislation that he opined upon in the Wall Street Journal, Senator Ted Cruz. That does something. I mean, there's only so much the federal government can do or should do. But he uh, speaks specifically of those cities that uh, allow for, quote unquote, autonomous autonomous zones to be set up. Local leaders who allow rioters to destroy lives and businesses need to be held accountable, writes Cruz. That's why he introduced the Restitution for Economic Losses Caused by Leaders Who Allow Insurrection and Mayhem Act. Really rolls off the tongue. That's reclaim for short. You know, it always works up to a pithy acronym. The bill would allow for trouble damages, meaning a plaintiff could be awarded triple the amount of damage done to his property, would also establish a federal cause of action, which would empower victims of violence in autonomous zones to take legal action against senior uh, local or state lawmakers who have tolerated or encouraged radicals to take over the streets or take over a particular area. Finally, when politicians refuse to defend innocent Americans, this bill would remove or limit a federal funding under grant programs that supply important law enforcement and crime prevention programs for local governments. That's a start. By the way, just in terms of what the actual failure is and continues to be, I mean, at least the short term one that you can do something about by bringing overwhelming force and enforcement of the laws to bear while you deal with the uh, more intractable problems of family disintegration and lack of quality schools and lack of choice to get to quality schools, that sort of discrimination by uh, household income and address stat to remember about Chicago, the average number of times a person arrested for shooting or murdering someone in Chicago has been arrested is 12, 12. The police know who the violent offenders are. They are arrested sometimes. And even when they are even a lot of times, obviously they're turned back out. To continue to victimize and re-victimize. The 10-year-old carjacker will be a 13-year-old, 14-year-old shooter. And that's what Lori Lightfoot doesn't want to talk about. And that's why Chicago is Murder City, USA. This is Dan Proud. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. On Monday, was it Monday? What's today? Wednesday? Yeah, Monday. Uh, informal briefing in the White House, the Oval Office, from President Trump and uh, some key advisors, including Cabinet Secretary of Treasury. Steve Mnuchin, who outlined the president's priorities when it comes to any phase four COVID relief legislation. We are committed that by the end of this month, 
uh, make sure that before the enhanced unemployment insurance expires that we pass legislation so that we can protect Americans that are unemployed. Now we've said the number one issue is we have to fix the technical fix on an enhanced unemployment. We're gonna make sure that we don't pay people more money to stay home than go to work. We wanna make sure that people who can go to work safely can do so. We'll have tax credits that incentivize businesses to bring people back to work. We'll have tax credits for PP&E, for safe work environment. And we're gonna have big incentives money to the states for education, for schools that can open safely and, and do education. So these are the priorities, as well as liability protection. We wanna make sure that frivolous lawsuits don't prevent schools, universities, and businesses from reopening. I love uh, Mnuchin to call, calling it a technical glitch with respect to paying more people, paying people more to stay home than to work. Like there's something wrong with a flux capacitor. It's not a technical glitch. You're just providing the wrong incentive. So just stop doing that. For more on what uh, Steve Mnuchin had to say and what uh, the White House is willing to accept in terms of a phase four deal, if there's one to be had, please to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so uh, where do you think stand with uh, phase four? This is a big deal. We need to make sure that we're not uh, paying people more to stay unemployed. By the way, there are a lot of workers uh, in many states that are getting twice as much money for staying at home under this uh, Biden plan yeah. as they're getting from uh, from working. So this is a big, big uh, uh, problem. We, we estimate that we're losing about two million jobs a month because of that policy. It just it doesn't make any sense. Uh, of course, Pelosi wants to extend that through the end of the election. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, but the other thing, you know, we need to do two things. Uh, well, three things. OK, write these down. Number one, we have to make sure we do not bail out the blue states like Illinois. Mm-hmm. I mean, Illinois, uh, I, I was just in Chicago. It's, it's, it's a disgrace, by the way, what's going on in Chicago. Total disgrace. Uh, number two, we have to cut the payroll tax for every worker to give them incentive to work. And number three, stop paying people not to work. What is it with liberals that they think that uh, you could just put out, you know, there are economists out there on the left who believe that paying people not to work stimulative. is a stimulus to yeah. the economy. Yeah, it's Nancy Pelosi's uh, position, stimulative. Well, okay, so um, uh, uh, so all that uh, so stipulated. I, there, there were reports there was a bit of uh, uh, fighting between uh, Mnuchin and maybe Kushner on the one hand and Larry Kudlow and the free marketeers on the other hand with respect yeah. to extending unemployment insurance. So where does that stand? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the fact is that, that when you pay people not to work, you're going to get uh, fewer people to work. And when you reward work, you're going to get more work. Uh, the Demer- I, there is there is some disagreement in the White House about the best step forward. Uh, but, you know, the guy who actually is siding with me and Art Laffer and Larry Kudlow, the most important person in the room, is Donald J. Trump. And Trump understands from being in business, you know, incentives matter. And uh, and so I think we're going to get a pretty good bill. The problem is, you know, Pelosi wants to do exactly the opposite. Look, Nancy Pelosi is operating under Operation Chaos right now. So anything that would actually help the economy grow over the last three months, over the next three months, is something she's going to oppose. I mean, Steve Forbes and I just wrote a memo on this warning Trump 
don't be like Bush. And I, you guys remember Bush in 1990? Read my lips. And he tried to make a deal with the, with the Democrats. And of course, his presidency went down the drain. A bad deal right now is worse than doing nothing. We've got a recovery going. We don't we don't actually need to spend several more trillion dollars. We're, you know, we're going to run a You know, we're going to run a deficit this year of almost five trillion dollars. And that's without this day for yeah. spending bill. Yeah. Well, and, and so, um, no, that's right. And so then what about what it seemed like McConnell may want? If he can get if you can get liability protection, then McConnell yeah. is willing to do another round of checks to <laughs> Americans. That seems clear. And if uh, Trump gets a payroll tax uh, relief, is is he willing to do some extension of, of enhanced unemployment benefits, even it's, if it's not 600 bucks a week? Look, Trump gets this. You can't. First of all, you cannot continue with the six hundred above. I mean, think about this. I mean, yeah, know, how, how does this shake out? Is what we're trying right. to get to. I mean, people understand that basic working class Americans understand. You know, the guy who gets up in the morning listens to your show in the morning while they go to work, and then work a full, uh, you know, a full day, uh, and then they come home. They're tired. They worked hard, yeah. and they go by the guy next door, and he's on his couch uh, eating potato chips. Uh, you know, watching TV. Now, under the under the Biden Pelosi plan, that person watching TV gets more money than the person who's working. I mean, I, you can't make up the stupidity of this. Trump gets that. Now, we're probably I think where we're going to end up is rather than six hundred dollars a month, maybe uh, a week. By the way, a week, six hundred dollars a week. Right. Yeah. Uh, we're going to we're going to probably end up at uh, two hundred dollars a week. I favor just going back to the old unemployment system. It pays you 50 to 60 percent of what you were getting. Uh, it's a temporary program so that you get your feet back on the ground, get back in the workforce. We've got jobs back now. The biggest do you guys know that we have 24 million people unemployed today. And yet everywhere I go, I've been on the road a lot late the last two weeks. All I see is help wanted signs. I talk to employers and they're saying, I can't get the workers back because if I, if I, if they, if I put them on the payroll, in fact, they get mad when I call them and say, Hey, you can, you've got your job back. They don't want their job back because people want to make more money uh, on unemployment benefits. Uh, last point, cause you, you really uh, threw down the gauntlet when you said this on our show and a number of other shows that if president Trump extends that enhanced unemployment benefit uh, of 600 bucks a week, yeah. Uh, he get that's a guaranteed loss in the election. You yeah. you think he's internalized that he's uh, he totally understands yeah. that and he's not going to he will only deal uh, in a modest amount that doesn't disincentivize work and in exchange for payroll tax at, at at including at least in exchange for payroll tax relief. So uh, Trump gets this totally. Uh, the real issue is how, you know how low they will go. You know Mnuchin was saying well we'll go to 100 percent. You know where people get as much as they got from and that's not good enough. No. I mean. You know, construction worker isn't going to go back on the job. That's a tough job being a construction worker if they if, you know, it can get just as much for not working. So I do think Trump gets that. Let's let's we have not surprisingly, up. the Goldman Sachs guy doesn't get it. But anyway, go ahead. And it's unbelievable, isn't it? They, they actually think that giving. And by the way, if that's right, man, why don't they just give everybody, well, let's say, fifteen hundred dollars a month and none of us have to work and we'll all just go out and spend money. It's easy as that. You know, that's that's just uh, it's, it's, not, it's, it's a Keynesian utopia. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I know it's this is this is lunacy. But but that's why I, mean, I want to understand where the president's up. at. And, and is he able to keep McConnell line, too? I mean, McConnell wants liability uh, protection, too. Is that also a must have? That's huge. We got to do that. We I'm doing a study on this right now. We could have as many as uh, half a million lawsuits every time somebody goes to back to work and gets uh, gets uh, sick. That uh, they were going to blame that on the employer that, you know, that you're talking about. And, and by the way, the trialers are just drooling right now over the past. They want to make, but, but 
And that's the spouse You know, yeah. we're going to sue every employer. Employers aren't going to hire workers if every time somebody gets sick, they get slapped with a million-dollar lawsuit. Plaintiff's attorneys are drooling as a function of their IQ, not necessarily their <laughs> appetite. Uh, Steve Moore, noted economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Steve, thanks as always. Stay safe. Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show and uh, cry the beloved country. What we are witnessing is a terrible shame of historical dimensions, but don't cry for too long. Instead, after a good loud wail, get up and take back the culture and values that we still hold dear and self-evident. That is the admonition from Rabbi uh, Dove Fisher in a, a very uh, thoughtful and personal piece about the state of America and American politics and American culture and the spectator. Rabbi Dove Fisher joins us now. He's a high-stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. Rabbi Dove Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I gave uh, the conclusion of your piece, but uh, help us get to that conclusion. Uh, What are you lamenting at present? I love the United States of America. It's one of the great blessings in my life that I was born in the United States and that I got to really live in a time that this great country with its great values uh, was at its peak. And my tragedy, and the tragedy of so many of us today, is that we are watching the greatest country there ever has been get torn or at least attempted by people to tear it down. People who want to destroy something because they've gone to colleges where a bunch of leftists and holdouts from 1968's riots, the uh, sort of unrepentant Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn types, Mm -hmm. who had nothing else that they could do professionally, so... They went into the universities to teach and to corrupt our youth and destroy a generation and then destroy a second generation. We have two generations now who do not appreciate what this country is. No one's breaking down doors to try to immigrate into Russia or into Venezuela or Cuba. Go ahead, name the communist country, China, or anything that derived from communism. When they built the Berlin Wall, that was the communists trying to keep people from immigrating out to the free West because people go only one direction. They go towards capitalism and freedom. They run away from communism. And to the degree that this country is suffering or has suffered so much trouble trying to control its borders, and especially on the South, our Southern border, it's because people are trying to get into this country because it's the greatest country in the world. And when you watch young people going around destroying and trying to take down monuments to some of the greatest heroes of this wonderful country. It's something that would lead you to truly feel that this country should have itself a good cry. Well, um, and, and, and that's really what motivated me. And, and uh, I, I like um, that you focus on institutions rather than sort of expressions of the institutions, the, the byproduct of these institutions. So you were saying in your piece, you know, it's not Antifa that particularly worries you. It's not Black Lives Matter that worries you. It's, as you just mentioned, it's institutions that are producing generations of ignoramuses, uh, entitled ignoramuses uh, at that, 
uh, like our universities. So just develop that a little bit more. Why don't uh, those uh, those Malcolm uh, McDowell types on the streets of Portland and Seattle and Chicago, why don't they worry you? They don't worry me, let's say Black Lives Matter, because I take a look at the people who really are in power and the troublemakers and the uh, worst spouters of the left. I look at the people who run the New York Times, all their editorial writers, and I look at the editorial writers at the Washington Post, and I just go down that list, and the owner of the Washington Post, Bezos, and I look at the people who run NBC, CBS, ABC, PBS, MSNBC, CNN, and I look at most of their main players, whether we're talking about Jake Tapper, or we're talking about Wolf Blitzer at one, or, or at the other one, whether you're talking about uh, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, and you go up and down, and you go up and down, when you list them all, they're all white. There's a few blacks that are thrown in, token blacks. They're all white, basically, the power holders. And the reason Black Lives Matter, they don't know it, but they're never going to win, is that the white guys that run all of that, and all the Meryl Streep's in Hollywood, and all the Hollywood actors that are activists on the left, uh, what they all have in common is they're white. They're never going to give up their power. They'll mouth platitudes. They'll put on a Kenty cloth. They'll throw some crumbs the way they would heartlessly throw crumbs at birds or animals at a zoo. That's what they've always done. All the social programs for African-Americans and Latinos, I mean, that's just crumbs. Uh, Ever since the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson, great society. So I'm not worried about those. Uh, uh, It's unfortunate in a way that the Black Lives Matter people don't even realize that they're just being used, manipulated as stooges by a bunch of Democrat leftists who will use whatever they can to try to take down President Trump. I want to talk. But, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about those crumbs, as well as uh, uh, another piece you wrote about um, uh, the last four months being a prelude to a rebound, and, and your vision for what that rebound looks like over the next four months. More with Rabbi Duff Fisher, high stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. More with the rabbi there. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back we're speaking with rabbi Doug fisher he's a high stakes litigation attorney adjunct professor of law and rabbi of young israel of orange county california we were talking about uh, uh the rabbi was uh, explaining how the left uh, power structure, which is predominantly white, uh, provides crumbs and lip service to uh, organizations like Black Lives Matter, uh, rationalizes away the thuggery of Antifa just to sort of dis, you know, sort of keep them at bay uh, so that they don't turn on. So those organizations don't turn on those in charge. I mean, we saw the same thing with that uh, that letter from all those white uh, liberal academics, mostly white liberal academics in Harper's magazine, you know, please, we got to temper the cancel culture because I don't want to get canceled, essentially was the message. Um, but those crumbs uh, this time around, you know, if the welfare state programs aren't enough, they're included. They've come in the form of now a demand for reparations. But those crumbs now also include um, eliminating American history. 
And uh, do you find that particularly dangerous, the tribute that the white left is willing to pay to their uh, socialist base, to the to the Jacobin base in order to protect their positions? Our American history is a gorgeous history. Um, It's the story of people who were fleeing from another continent at a time when it was terrifyingly dangerous to go across the Atlantic. There still were some people who didn't even have certainty that the earth was round. And regardless, it was terribly dangerous to go across. But we had the original people who came and landed at Jamestown and survived. That's what Thanksgiving is about. Um, You had people who came to Plymouth Rock and were able to create a religion without King George standing in the way. And our culture and our history is something to, to preserve because those heroes, those 56, for example, who signed the Declaration of Independence and they pledged their their wealth and they pledged their lives to each other, uh, risking their very lives. And they had a lot to risk. They were in the top, uh, but they put it all on the line for democracy and freedom. And one of the great tragedies I mentioned in my article that I, I'm a rabbi, I'm an Orthodox Jew, an Orthodox rabbi, I'm uh, also a national leader with a group called Coalition for Jewish Values, we're about 1,500 Orthodox rabbis. Um, One of the things we Jews have been doing for 2,000 years as a religious requirement uh, is Passover. We sit down, and there are our rabbis of 2,000 years ago ordained certain foods, certain rituals, certain texts, and we recite these texts, and before we eat those foods, we talk about why those foods, and it's all so that we have our kids at the table with their parents and grandparents discussing the freedom from Pharaoh in Egypt. And if we had not gone free from the Pharaoh in Egypt, to this day we'd be slaves. And that's what we teach the kids. And the United States, we have three holidays that kind of potentially could have done the same thing with kids. Days like Memorial Day, days like the 4th of July, Thanksgiving. But the thing is you can't really impose religious requirements And so what ends up happening is Thanksgiving is a time that parents, grandparents, and kids, they ought to explain why they're they're eating turkey and cranberry sauce and yams. It's about these settlers, these early pioneers came to the Jamestowns and found new foods in a new land, and they somehow survived by God's miracle, and they created this extraordinary country. Or Memorial Day, to remember the great heroes who gave all and gave their lives so we would be free in wars like the Revolutionary War. And the War of 1812, most people never even heard of it nowadays. And they continued fighting and they gave their lives in places like Gettysburg and uh, moved on World War I, the great battles of World War I, World War II, going on to those who gave their lives at Hamburger Hill and Vietnam and more recently in Fallujah and, and, and places in Iraq. And the thing is that kids ought to have grown up with that if there were only some way to make them sit one night a year like Passover at the Seder. And and they would sit with their parents and their grandparents and listen to the story of America, of a small number of people with a great concept that all humans are created equal. And instead, unfortunately, tragically, the kids grow up without knowing American history. 
And on the other hand, they don't know the history of the Soviet Union, for example. So when some idiot like Bernie Sanders goes ahead and talks about the beauties of what he calls socialism, but he's talking about communism. But when he went to the Soviet Union on his honeymoon, he was talking about how bread lines are a good thing. Yeah. It's a shame that kids don't know not only the history of America, they have no idea about Stalin, the Golodomor of what he did to the Ukrainians, um, what happened in Cambodia under communism, even the present times, what Hugo Chavez did to Venezuela, a fabulously wealthy country, how he ran it into the ground because of communism. They don't know history. And so, I mean, I, yeah, so I'll, I'll take that as a yes, you're very concerned about things like the 1619 Project, and it's not the honorifics like giving Nicole Hannah-Jones a Pulitzer Prize. It's the fact that it's part of public school curriculums increasingly. That's the problem. Oh, it's horrible. You're taking kids. When I went to school, the day began in yeshiva. Yeshiva is mm-hmm. an orthodox um, elementary school and high school. Yeshiva is an orthodox parochial school. Every day began. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And long before we even understood what the word indivisible meant, we, half of us probably were saying one nation invisible. <laughs> the thing is that we grew up with our hands on our hearts with Pledge of Allegiance, understanding that this is a great country. And then we sang the Star Spangled Banner. And we understood, again, maybe we didn't know what ramparts are, and, but we knew all the words. And, bef- and we knew we just felt patriotic. We were taught that we are lucky to be living in the greatest country there ever has been. And, and I grew up. I went to Columbia University undergrad, where my professors, even back then, 30, 40 years ago, were trying to tell us in class that this country is not what we believe it to be. And we knew enough to blow it off, because at least we learned stuff. We learned enough history. We knew we were being brainwashed. He is Rabbi Dove Fisher, high-stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. Rabbi, a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having had me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Well, they came from Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Her name removed from the uh, Planned Parenthood of Greater New York Mill it, um, in, in Manhattan, uh, now simply known as the Manhattan Health Center. The um, problem, of course, Margaret Sanger's um, long known about, but uh, in these Jacobin times, now there's a new reckoning for her uh, support for eugenics. Uh, Margaret Sanger was a ghastly human being that founded a ghastly organization that's still as ghastly. I mean, if the Ku Klux Klan kicked David Duke out, would that change its racist, horrific nature? No. And uh, whitewashing Margaret Sanger doesn't change the nature of Planned Parenthood. But it is instructive because it gives an opportunity for more people to come to learn about Margaret Sanger and the underpinnings of Planned Parenthood who they really are and who she really was. She was a terrible human, ter- terrible human who uh, believed that um, 
Congress should uh, establish a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to the to that grade of population whose progeny is already tainted or whose inheritance is, is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. Yeah. She wanted to send uh, the uh, developmentally disabled and others, the lesser peoples, to farms to be separated, segregated from the general population. Uh, she uh, spoke uh, about uh, her views on population control to the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the New York Times reported at the time. So she's been polled. Um, what about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Does she need to be polled? Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, source of so many Hollywood documentaries. Justice Ginsburg, a 2009 interview in the New York Times, asked about uh, abortion and particularly Medicaid funding of abortion after uh, and talking uh, with a reporter about a ruling that surprised her. This the Harris v. McRae case, 1980 case in which the court upheld the Hyde Amendment forbidding the use of Medicaid dollars for abortions. Ginsburg said this, frankly, I had thought that at the time Roe was decided there was concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of. We don't want to have too many of. That would include her when she says we, wouldn't it? So that row was going to be then set up for Medicaid funding for abortion, which some people felt would risk coercing women and having abortions when they didn't really want them. But when the court decided McRae, the case came out the other way, and then I realized that my perception of it had been altogether wrong. When Roe was decided, there was concern about population growth. Sure, that's the Sanger way and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of. Well, golly gee, Justice Ginsburg, do go on. Tell us which populations we don't want to have too many of. The ghoul that she is. Friend of Antonin Scalia during uh, their concurrent time on this mortal coil or not. That's Planned Parenthood. That's Sangerism. That's eugenics. That's the racism that uh, underpins the pro-abortion ghouls in this country all the way to the high court. This is Dan Pry. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. President Trump has his first COVID-19 briefing in many moons, and it was a tight, disciplined, informative performance, uh, in my estimation, uh, including addressing some of the things I hoped he would address, uh, providing context where the press has not, for example, on the uh, recent increase in cases. President Trump uh, uh, first starting out talking about the the supplies that uh, the federal government has and the distribution mechanisms that are in place, combined with the case fatality rate, a little bit of context to those case spikes. We again have tremendous amounts of supplies. We are in very good shape and we can move them quickly 
Our case fatality rate has continued to decline and is lower than the European Union and almost everywhere else in the world. If you watch American television, you think that the United States was the only country involved with and suffering from the China virus. Nice little veiled shot there. He also provided some context to uh, where we are versus where we were, April versus today. In April, the average age of individuals who tested positive for the virus was over 50 years old. Today, the average age is significantly younger. Hospital lengths of stay are almost half of what they were in April. So the stays are about half. The rate of cases requiring hospitalization has been reduced, and mortality among those admitted to the hospital is nearly one half of what it was in April. We've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about this disease, how to handle it. The doctors have learned a lot. Important data points that uh, you're not getting from the D.C. press corps, with perhaps the exception of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and you're not getting in the media, with the exception of shows like ours. And uh, the data, the case numbers without context, is fodder for hysterics and demagogues. And that's, I don't know, pretty good labels for the D.C. press corps. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NAH, an NHS consultant pathologist across the pond there um, in merry old England. Dr. John Lee, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So uh, the, your reaction to that context that President Trump provided on the case increases in particular parts of the country, uh, it, really important to, to provide hospitalization rates, case fatality rates, median age of infection. That, that's important to understand what's happening, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. I mean, in the first article I wrote right back in March, uh, very soon after the UK announced the lockdown, um, you know, the main point I was trying to make was that you simply can't understand any of the numbers with regard to COVID without understanding the context of them. So you have to have comparators. You have to understand, you know, what happens in a normal year. You have to understand what's different about young people getting this disease and old people disease. And unfortunately, um, you know, most, as you said, I mean, most of the uh, stuff that's been reported hasn't given any context. And unfortunately, because our, our politicians everywhere in the world seem to have been being led blindly by um, uh, groups of scientists with their own agenda, it seems to me, um, they haven't been giving us much either. So it's very, very welcome to hear President Trump doing that. I think that's a, that's a real step forward. I wish our politicians were, were doing it a bit more over this side of the Atlantic. Well, and again, the, the texturing here, the lack of it and the need for it, Study published by CDC in in this country, uh, July 16th, looked at 5,700 patients who tested positive for COVID and more than 59,000 people who came in contact with them. The findings, just two out of 100 infected people had caught the virus from non-household contacts. Two percent of those infected non-household contacts. And yet we're uh, told and, and we have mandates in some states that we have to wear masks everywhere, wear masks outside. You can catch it uh, anywhere you go. Uh, when in point of fact, we know the the overwhelming majority of cases, <laughs> I mean, two out of 100, the overwhelming majority of cases, sustained contact in close quarters, most notably with your household, particularly during lockdowns. And oh, by the way, locking down people in their house turns out to spread the infection. Yeah, I mean, you know, the evidence right from the early part of this uh, epidemic has been that it's one of these viruses that spreads well in close contact when people are particularly unwell with it and when they're very close together. So 
you know, the the trouble with the trouble with uh, what happened is I think is that there was a narrative that started off this whole thing. The narrative came out of China, and then with pictures on media of, of awful things happening. So we were all primed. At least you know, a lot of people were primed to to believe that this was a very nasty virus, and the thing you should do is admit everybody to hospital and treat them intensively. Um, it seems to me that a lot of the admitting to hospital was actually a bad thing because it concentrated nasty strains of the virus in close proximity with vulnerable people. Um, and so then we've had this awful explosion of, of uh, cases in vulnerable people and in care homes where people were, were sent to afterwards. I mean, I think two things have happened um, over the last few months. I think people have learned better how to deal with the virus. I think the virus has turned out not to be anywhere near as severe as it was originally feared to be. And I also think it's quite likely that the virus itself has reduced in virulence because you know, the, more, the more virus spreads around in, in the population with relatively low-grade infections, the more that milder versions of the virus can actually get to spread amongst people. So now, that, now we read that something like 90% of the infections are asymptomatic, and it seems to me that contrary to getting everybody to wear face masks and still have all these restrictions, it seems to me that actually we could pretty much return to normal and that spreading the, the virus asymptomatically is a good thing because that would soon get us up to herd immunity. Um, recent paper in the UK uh, showing that because of the uh, degree of um, background uh, uh, resistance to coronaviruses in general, and when you assume that the population mixes, probably you only need 20% of people to have this virus to have herd immunity. So it seems to me that in... In trying to do what we're doing, not only is there no evidence that uh, social distancing and lockdown really does anything, you can't stop the wind, um, but it's actually prevent, you know, and not only is it causing great harm in terms of the harms that those things are causing uh, in healthcare as well as elsewhere to the economy, um, but actually you know, it would be better if we simply got back to normal and let the virus spread. But the, prob the probability is that in five years' time, all countries will be in the same place. Everybody who is really going to be vulnerable to this virus and is going to catch it and die I'm afraid they probably will because you simply can't, you know, you can't keep people behind the sofa for months and years on end. Um, and the fact is that it seems to me anyway that it's, it's unlikely that social distancing, wearing masks and uh, lockdown will have achieved anything other than a very slight delay on that end point. You must be considered an apostate in the medical circles in Britain. And I wonder then what, if that's true, what your conversations are like with uh, other medical, uh, other doctors, as well as the public health professionals at NAHS and uh, in those circles in in the UK. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really like hearing myself described as an apostate. I mean, I, I, I've got, I mean, I was quite enjoying being retired, really. I didn't really want to get back into doing all this stuff, but it seemed to me that what was being put out there was so wrong that somebody had to say something. I actually don't think I am considered an apostate when I talk to people behind the scenes. Um, you know, there's very wide acceptance that what we're being told and what we're seeing with our own eyes are, are two different things. It does seem to me that a lot of the advisors advising government are really not that interested in what's happening to the public. They're involved in reputational damage limitation, having set us down this road without good evidence, having caused direct harms to, to many people by this uh, road that we've gone down. They're simply involved in making absolutely sure that nobody can blame them for the fact that we did it. Um, I think actually though, behind the scenes, there's a very wide group of you know, the silent majority who can see for themselves that really you know, this isn't the apocalyptic thing that we were being told, and that actually the, the responses to this are still uh, overreactions. Um, so no, I don't think I am an apostate really. I think I'm somebody who's tried to look at the evidence. I mean, one thing I would say is right throughout this, from the beginning to now, I'm constantly questioning my own interpretation of this. You know, has, am I just 
talk, and, and I and people like me, are we just talking nonsense? And have all the government scientists and the government responses, have they all got that right? Or really are we in the midst of a great big hysteria whereby you know, governments have played copycat and now that they can't apologize and they can't turn back, you know, which is the true version of the narrative? And I keep on trying to question this, I keep on looking at the evidence, but I'm afraid the evidence does seem to suggest that this is one huge own goal by humanity and, and the more we prolong it, the more of an own goal we're causing. And, and I, I do feel that, um, you know, I do feel a lot of people can see that for themselves, but they, because of the information that they're being fed on most of the mainstream media, they, they don't know how to question it, but they feel that it's wrong. And I guess I'm trying here trying to help people uh, give them some ammunition and shows like yours, you know, uh, trying to give people yeah. ammunition to question it. No, absolutely. And we appreciate it. I mean, uh, apostate is a compliment in these times. When we come back with Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NHS consultant pathologist, I want to discuss the public health panjandrums focus on their reputations rather than on truth-telling and educating the public. More with Dr. John Lee when we return. Show.com. We're back with Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NHS consultant pathologist. And before the break, I called you an apostate, and I meant that as a compliment to you during these times. I truly. But there are some doctors and medical and public health professionals that are, including in this country. We talk to a lot of them, people that really know their stuff like you do, and they are willing to uh, risk, you know, ridicule or reputational damage in certain circles to speak what they know to be true based on being intellectually curious. Uh, This used to be not a controversial thing, but it is. And that's sort of a sad commentary. And uh, the, the, the thing you said about reputational damage control, they're mainly interested in because of the recommendations and the policies that were pursued based on those recommendations early on. And still, I think uh, such a good example of that. And um, we spoke with um, uh, Dr. Roger Klein, who is the former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic yesterday uh, about the same topic. Uh, our CDC director, Dr. Redfield, saying that if everybody wore masks in this country for six weeks, the thing would disappear and, and President Trump, obviously a layman, saying, well, I, I just don't believe that. And of course he doesn't believe that. He shouldn't believe that because, because it's not true. But why would Dr. Redfield knows that's not true? Why would he say something like that other than to try and scare people into compliance or for some sort of, as you say, reputational rehabilitation because of how inaccurate, uh, how wrong the CDC and other public health professionals were throughout this crisis? Yeah, I mean, they've gone down a particular route. I mean, they... they they pinged us into a particular way of responding to this virus, which has had and, and will continue to have over the next few years you know, great ongoing harms to people's psychological health, to their, to their actual health. Um, and they, I just don't think they can turn around. I think they also, I, I do feel that a lot of the people in public health and in epidemiology, they really believe their models. And the models are actually based on you know, their probabilistic modeling. And the fact is, actually, that's got a methodological problem because you can't do probabilistic modeling unless you have a fully defined problem, which obviously this one isn't. They've made a lot of assumptions, which many of which have already been shown to be wrong, uh, but they believe in their models. And like a lot of scientists, they get very, very focused on the thing that they know best. 
they're only interested in COVID. They're sort of not interested in anything else, really. So, I mean, my opinion is that, I mean, and I'm speaking as somebody who's been an academic myself for 30 years, is that academics are the very last people we should be entrusting to make public policy because context and perspective wider perspective isn't normally a strong point in academics. They're very, very good at little focused things. They're not so good at big picture. That's what we have our politicians for. And I'm surprised that more politicians haven't been showing leadership in terms of putting the, the imperfect and uncertain science that we have on this in its, in its place. So, for example, in the UK, with regard to face masks that you just asked, we're going to have to all wear face masks in the shops from tomorrow. Now, we haven't had to do this at any stage during the epidemic until now, but now that the infection rate is such that you'd have to meet 25,000 people in the UK to meet one symptomatic person, so in other words, one person who's got a cough or a cold, um, now <laughs> we have to wear face masks. And simultaneously with, with that announcement, lo and behold, a modelling study appeared to say that if we didn't do this, there were going to be 120,000 deaths uh, this winter, which is complete conjecture, and it was, you know, in my opinion, as wrong as the first models were. Um, and also, we had two studies from the Royal Society, the, you know, the prestigious, a bit like your National Academy of Sciences, the Royal Society is a prestigious scientific society over here, alleging that we should wear face masks. But when you read those two reports, one of them is saying, oh, well, we put far too much uh, emphasis on evidence-based medicine, as if evidence-based medicine isn't the thing that allows us to determine you know, real truth from arm-waving. And the other one, one of the best pieces of evidence they could adduce for wearing face masks was a study using 39 hamsters, where they put a partition between the hamster cage, put face mask material on, in the partition, and showed it reduced viral spread. And therefore, they say, we should all wear face masks in public. It's Honestly, it's complete nonsense. I mean, in my opinion, when you look at it, there is essentially no good evidence that face masks do anything other than make a fashion statement. Uh, there's another study I wanted to get your reaction to, because this is a bit more technical. It's a study from uh, a, a consortium of German researchers that was posted uh, that finds cross-reactive COVID uh, T-cell epitopes revealed pre-existing T-cell responses in 81% of unexposed individuals and validation of similarity to common cold human coronaviruses provided a functional basis for postulated heterologous uh, immunity in COVID-19 infections. The, the, the upshot, as I understand it, is you're talking about 81% of unexposed individuals have T-cell immunity to COVID-19. Yeah, well, I mean, that's actually a higher percentage than the study that came out from your side of the pond a month or two ago, which found 50 to 60 percent. So, but the thing is, it doesn't surprise me because when you look at colds, I mean, normally we don't measure colds like this. We don't identify the viruses that cause people to get colds. But it's reckoned that um, in studies that have been done, about one in six colds in a normal winter cold season are, to do, are caused by coronaviruses. So given that we can actually identify those as being related viruses, it doesn't surprise me at all that, the, that there's cross-reacting immunity to them. And of course, a lot of the news about testing for um, coronavirus has all been about uh, antibody testing. But antibodies are one arm of the immune system. They're actually not the main arm that normally fights viruses. The main arm that fights viruses is the T-cell side, which doesn't make antibodies. It, it has a cellular response whereby our immune cells go around and kill the cells that are infected by, um, by viruses. So the fact that you know, in our lives, a high proportion of us have already been exposed to coronaviruses isn't surprising given that one in six colds you know, are and, caused by those. So and, if you've had 12 colds, you know, you've got a good chance of being exposed to them. And just to make sure that, that, that this is clear, T-cell immunity is central for protection from viral infections, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So there are two arms of the immune system. The B cells respond to basically any uh, you know, new protein or new bit and piece that comes into the body, and they make antibodies. And antibodies bind the bits and pieces that circulate in the blood, and they, they therefore cause other cells to be able to take those things out of the blood. And that's the main arm that responds to bacterial infections, for example, because they tend to circulate in the blood. Viruses, they get inside our cells. So because they're hidden away inside cells, it, you know, antibodies don't work against viruses on the whole. They might respond to viral antigens, but they don't work. But the T cells have mechanisms of recognizing which cells have been infected by viruses, by various proteins that appear on the surface. And then they, the way they deal with those is they kill the cell. And in killing the cell, they stop the virus reproducing. And so that stops the viral infection then getting worse in our bodies. So it's the T cell side, really, that's the main side. Um, so when, when you look at the, under the microscope, for example, if you see a bacterial infection, you see a lot of plasma cells there, which are a type of B cell, making antibodies. If you look at a viral infection there, you see lots of T cells, which are different appearance under the microscope, and they're the ones that attack the virally infected cells. And they're the ones that your study that you mentioned has shown 81%. So there are, there are several studies now showing you know, over 50% and even substantially high percentages of cross-reacting T cells. Doesn't surprise me at all. And of course, it means the number of people who need to be directly infected by this new COVID virus uh, for us to get herd immunity is much, much lower than we were being told, much, much lower than many of the models assume. He is Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NHS consultant pathologist. Uh, Dr. Lee, uh, thanks for joining us again. I always appreciate your expertise. Thank you. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The eight scariest words in the English language for Ronald Reagan. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Government's rules for restaurants. New York City. For more than a month, 2% or fewer uh, of those tested in New York City have been found positive for COVID. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, America's governor, nonetheless, has refused to allow any indoor dining in the city. Then last week, he declared all alcoholic drinks must now be served with a meal or snack, which gave rise to one restaurant, Cuomo Chips. The mandate is to prevent New Yorkers from congregating and spreading the virus. If you have uh, chips with your beer, then you won't congregate. Uh, And then there's this again, COVID-19 helping helping you. Gilead's antiviral drug, Remdesivir. Six Senate Democrats, including possible VP nominee Elizabeth Warren and Comrade Bernie, just after finishing his manifesto with Joe Biden, said in a letter last week to HHS that the Trump administration acquired its supply of remdesivir at an exorbitant cost in a deal that allows Gilead to reap windfall revenues that are paid by increased premiums for American families. Uh, As the Wall Street Journal opines, that's false and goes on to dissect it, which is useful. The FDA authorized remdesivir in May for emergency use after randomized trials showed positive results for COVID patients, as we know. 
On June 29th, HHS struck a deal with Gilead that gives the U.S. 100% of Gilead's projected production of remdesivir for July, 90% in August, and September. Under the agreement, the U.S. government will pay $2,340 per course, the same price as other developed countries, but the U.S. gets its treatments months earlier. Private insurers pay hospitals bundled rates for inpatient treatments. Gilead has set the hospital wholesale rate at $3,250 a course, so $2,340 for HHS, $3,250 for the hospitals uh, who are paid by private insurers. The Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, a nonprofit often cited by the left who say drug prices are too high, praised Gilead's responsible pricing decision, quote unquote, suggesting that the drug's clinical benefits would merit a price more like forty five eighty to five thousand dollars per treatment and between twenty five twenty and twenty eight hundred after accounting for potential benefits from the steroid dexamethasone, uh, which also has showed some promising results as a therapeutic. Yet Senate Democrats say even though the U.S. government will pay the same prices foreign countries, privately assured Americans will pay $860 more through higher premiums. Never mind that by shortening hospital stays, remdesivir will save insurers, hospitals, and patients thousands of dollars per case, $2,500 a day on average inpatient to hospitalize somebody. And then they went a, a step further, did Senate Democrats. They also demand HHS invoke legal provisions that allow it to assert control over the production and distribution of remdesivir. They want the government to seize patents for the drugs that result in part in part from publicly funded R&D, license them to a generic manufacturer for production at a lower cost. So here's the upshot. Gilead discovers, develops remdesivir more than a decade ago while exploring potential treatments for hepatitis C and respiratory syntitial virus. While the drug didn't work against these viruses, the NIH has since helped fund in vitro and mouse studies of remdesivir's efficacy against emerging viruses, including Ebola, MERS, SARS, and COVID-19. This is not unusual for NIH to finance such studies of vaccines and treatments for infectious diseases because the success rate is low. Gilead already licensed remdesivir to five generic manufacturers at no cost to make and sell in 127 developing countries. Didn't have to do that. Gilead expects its development and manufacturing costs by year's end to exceed $1 billion. As the Wall Street Journal concludes, the threat of price drug price controls is bad enough and re would result in Americans waiting longer for new treatments, as patients in socialized, government-run health systems do now. Many drugs evolve in part from basic research funded by the government. If progressives have their way, every vaccine and drug maker could have to hand over its intellectual property on demand to the government. That would kill innovation and that innovation that's saving lives of COVID patients as we speak. So that's the left's big plan. Government knows best, including when it comes to the pharma industry, because they're in the business of saving lives. The government is, but the private sector isn't. The innovative sector, the productive sector. Okay. Which is why I found this piece in The Atlantic interesting, particularly because of some of the commentary. The piece by Caleb Watney, who's a resident fellow at the R Street Institute, is about America's innovation engine slowing and the reasons for that. Well, one of the reasons is, and this isn't really tackled here, which is interesting, is the penchant for the government to insinuate itself into the operation of every productive business, much less sector in the country, including Pharma and the remdesivir couldn't be a more salient example of that, what I, of that which I speak, which is why when President Trump refers to deregulation, just even holding the line on regulations in his first three years, which was revolutionary, uh, that is an underappreciated 
productive thing that this administration has done if you're interested in innovation across sectors. When we come back, we'll be joined by the aforesaid Caleb Watney of the R Street Institute. We'll be back with more right after Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. As promised, we're now joined by Caleb Whitney of the R Street Institute. Caleb, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. So what about that? You talk about the visa debacle as the... Latest of many ominous signs for the United States, along the world's primary incubator of new technologies, new drugs, new therapies, new business models. What about um, the uh, government intervention into the affairs of private enterprise as a particularly anti-innovation? Yeah, no, that can absolutely be a big barrier to innovation. Um, a colleague of mine has coined the term permissionless innovation um, to describe sort of the legal atmosphere in which you can innovate without having to ask for permission first, and that being a huge boon to innovation. So yes, I certainly think that's a very important factor. Of course, in, a, in an op-ed, you can't address every single factor Understood. for innovation. And, Understood. Yeah. So I was trying to focus on three that I felt like were, were trending in the wrong direction. Start with the, because uh, this, this is talked about a lot, and the idea of, of talent clusters, particularly in urban centers. And uh, as people may begin uh, working remotely or departing from high-density areas like urban centers, those clusters could be broken up, and that may have a deleterious effect on innovation. For sure, yeah. I mean, one of the most consistent findings by economists who are trying to study the impact of innovation over you know the past couple hundred years, really, has been just the huge impact of clusters of smart, talented, ambitious people working in a closely connected sort of geographical location. We call those agglomeration effects. And the idea is that through a combination of factors, you have spontaneous run-ins of people in different fields. You sort of have late night conversations that wouldn't have otherwise happened if you know they're just happening over Zoom. There's just sort of a, an atmosphere of creativity that ends up being created. Um, people push each other in ways that they, they wouldn't have thought. They have conversations they wouldn't have otherwise thought. They meet people they never would have met otherwise. And all of those sorts of spontaneous interactions end up creating new firms, creating new ideas, creating new products that end up pushing out the technological frontier. Well, and so, uh, I mean, it's hard to interrupt, but uh, Rich Carlgaard, a publisher of Forbes, uh, and I had this conversation about this very topic. And what he suggested is, well, yeah, that that's definitely happening. Uh, some of these clusters are breaking up, but but what you'll see, he thinks, is they're just migrating to other places that are more friendly for all kinds of reasons, tax treatment, uh, capital, uh, uh, regulatory environment. And so he said, yeah, I wouldn't take a long position necessarily in Silicon Valley, but I would take a long position on Austin, for example, as uh, a, uh, a, a cluster, a talent cluster that's forming and that will be fully formed in the not too distant future. So could it be just migration to other places that are more friendly to these sort of innovators? It could be. I think it's probably going to be a mix of both. So on the one hand, you are seeing a lot of the big tech companies like Twitter, Facebook, uh, Quora, Stripe have all been moving to permanent remote, or at least they are claiming they may you know, reverse that in a couple of years. But uh, at least for, for the foreseeable future, they're trying to be remote and uh, they're encouraging their employees to you know, move out to locations where there are just you know, much lower housing prices and they can take advantage of that. Um, and so that's going to be a distribution. Maybe they'll start to cluster somewhere else. Maybe we won't. 
Um, but I do, I do buy the larger point that I, I don't think industrial clusters are going away as a phenomenon. They're, they're just too powerful. Um, but I do think that maybe instead of going, there, there's no guarantee basically that they stay in the United States. You've already been seeing talent clusters in, say, Canada, like Toronto, have been massively expanding in the past couple of years as they've been trying to make themselves a very welcoming place, both in terms of regulations, in terms of immigration policy, in terms of tax treatment. Um, similarly, the, the UK, London is trying to make themselves a pretty fashionable location. Australia has had a pretty good regulatory environment on things like drones. Um, so, you know, while there's a chance they might migrate to Austin, there's also a chance we might just lose them out altogether. Uh, the other thing you point about in terms of incubators of innovation and uh, creative thinkers, university systems and university systems uh, suffering uh, uh, through some financial turmoil right now, uh, many uh, directly related to COVID, but some also had financial problems coming into COVID. And uh, is this, again, a, a time where now you have to have the university start to rethink what their priorities should be and maybe they shouldn't be uh, politics on campus? Maybe. Um, I think what I'm perhaps most concerned about is what happens to their um, STEM departments. Um, so you're seeing that in departments like yeah. uh, you know, computer science, 79% of their graduate students in computer science are international students. Uh, it's 81% in um, electrical engineering, 75% uh, in industrial engineering. So the vast majority of their students in some of these STEM studies are international students who are also huge financial, uh, I guess, uh, benefits to them because they tend to pay out of state tuition rates. And so I think we're likely to see the cuts, the, you know, the cuts aren't necessarily going to be coming from, you know, the English studies or the critical studies departments. They're more likely to happen in the STEM studies. And I think that's particularly worrying about for, for innovation purposes. Yeah, and it's a complicated picture, too, because you also have the uh, the problem of uh, land-grant universities that have a responsibility to their residents, the taxpayers who finance them, and uh, consistent with their charter. You have the problem of Chinese nationals that come here to get educated and then are engaged in industrial espionage through things like the Confucius Institutes. So it's it's just a complicated picture where perhaps just saying, well, we we want to attract the best and brightest, and we certainly do, and the old saying about the visa being stamped to every graduate degree um, in STEM, you know, that's that's nice in theory, but it really becomes a, a, an assessment that needs to be made on an individualized basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there there are certainly concerns about, um, say, you know, Chinese industrial espionage. I, I guess I, I would have a few points of pushback there. One, um, you know, we get lots of international students from non-Chinese countries and outside of China, we, we really aren't all that concerned about industrial espionage. So if you want to, you know, staple a green card to the diploma of every STEM graduate student who isn't from China, that would still be a major change in policy. Yeah, that's right. I think the other thing, yeah, I, I think the other factor is that um, while Chinese espionage is a concern um, and we want to, you know, maybe be doing more rigorous background checks or find better ways of countering that, uh, you know, the majority of, graduate students that are coming here from China are not engaged in espionage and end up wanting to stay in the United States. So if you look at AI PhD students, as an example, uh, a recent report found that 90% of them end up staying in the United States. And, you know, these people go on to found companies and, you know, work for, for top companies. And uh, there are isolated events of espionage that we should certainly persecute, but it, it would be far more damaging for us to cut off the flows of international talent. Uh, in some sense, we want to be the location where 
is so on the cutting edge that everyone is trying to spy on us rather than being the country that's trying to do the spying, if that makes sense. When we come back with Caleb Watney, I want to talk more about the visa programs and uh, industrial espionage, particularly as it relates to Chinese nationals educated in the United States, and uh, get to the last point in your piece as well. More with Caleb Watney when we return. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Caleb Watney, and before the break... You and I were talking about visa programs. And look, I agree. Uh, as I said, it needs to be judged on an individualized basis. I mean, for example, the uh, the son or daughter of some senior uh, Politburo member of the Chinese communists yeah. is a little bit should perhaps get more scrutiny than the, uh, you know, the, 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 the generic Chinese family that sends their kid here to be educated because their dad or mom or their family is a successful business family or whatever. I mean, it's it's, it's all about ties. It's not about uh, knocking out all Chinese uh, nationals from yep. being educated here. No, I, we're in complete agreement about that. Um, uh, the, the, the last uh, point you make is is sort of connected to this one, which is how we do immigration. And the, there was a lot of talk in the 2016 campaign about uh, uh, refocusing our priorities for uh, immigrants to this country. And of course, not much has happened there because we're sort of still <laughs> stuck on DACA and relate and the wall. But uh, but but speak to the the areas of immigration reform you think would be pro innovation. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the United States has a long history of basically being the uh, premier destination for top international scientists for um top technical practitioners, um, in spite of an immigration system that is in many ways not optimized for that. So if you look at, you know, some of the countries with which we're competing, so Australia, Canada, uh, the UK, uh, the UK is actually an interesting example. Just in February, they launched a new visa category called the Global Talent Visa, uh, which is explicitly sort of aimed at this uh, you know, top of the skill set distribution and trying to make it uh, as easy as possible for them to come to the UK. It's an unlimited visa. So anyone who, you know, meets the criteria can come. It's not artificially capped. Um, and uh, they were trying to make it easy, basically, for the UK to, to end up being a welcoming destination. As I mentioned earlier, you know, Canada has been putting up billboards in Silicon Valley saying, hey, having trouble bringing in talented workers, come up to Toronto. It's going to be much easier uh, to you know, navigate around those immigration laws there. Um, for the U.S. in particular, we've had a huge number of talented people come here through the, through the university system and end up, end up wanting to stay. Um, but again, there are not very good pathways for them to stay. Um, you know, they can have a hope at the H-1B lottery, but that's a lottery. And so you really don't know if you're going to be able to get it. Um, there's the O-1 visa for extraordinary ability. Um, but in practice, that ends up being used to uh, get fashion models and soccer players into the country rather than uh, <laughs> top international scientists. Um, so oh. I'm actually working on a, a broader policy proposal right now to overhaul the O-1 visa because um, I, I think that could be a really well. Uh, well, let's tool. let's not cut off the flow of models, Caleb. Please, <laughs> come on, have have, yeah, have yeah. a little have a little heart, Caleb. For goodness' sake, I will, I will. Well, so the nice thing about the O-1 in particular is, it, is that, like the global talent visa in the UK, it's actually uncapped. 
So we can have both of the fashion players, the soccer players, and the international All right. Players. That's good. It's a win-win. I like it. Caleb Watney, exactly, yeah. resident fellow at the R Street Institute. His piece in the Atlantic, America's Innovation Engine is Slowing. Appreciate the uh, joining us, Caleb. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow danproftshow.com for podcasts on social media. At Dan Prof Show or at Dan Prof, either way works. And uh, President Trump uh, offered his first COVID nineteen briefing yesterday, uh, first in many many moons, and it was much different than his previous iterations. It was short, compact, fact filled, covered a lot of topics, prepared remarks. Generally speaking, riffed a little bit, prepared remarks, a few questions, and he was in the wind. There was no brawling with the press, really, no matter how pointed and silly their questions were. And uh, he kept his uh, attention focused on the message he wanted to deliver, not on the tangents they wanted to take him. I thought it was a good performance. But I'll tell you what, I thought Ari Fleischer, former White House spokesman for President George W. Bush, made a good point about the venue uh, in some uh, post-briefing commentary. Uh, Here's uh, Ari Fleischer with a suggestion for President Trump's backdrop for these briefings. This administration has done so much. They have dispatched so many doctors, so many nurses to areas with staffing shortages, sent so many masks, so much equipment to hotspots across the country. FEMA, HHS, CDC, they're all doing what they should do, but the president's not getting the credit. What I would do instead of going to the briefing room, is I'd have the president go to the warehouses where the trucks are rolling with medicines for the hotspots. Give a 15-minute speech there. See off the trucks. Go where the nurses are getting redeployed. Thank the nurses. Put the president in the middle of the action. The action's not in the briefing room. The action is the things this administration's actually doing throughout the countryside. The president should spend the next two, three weeks on the road doing those events, highlighting what his administration is doing to show how much he cares and that he's on top of it. I really like that idea. I think it's uh, eminently sensible. Show people. Don't just tell them. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Conrad Black, financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me, Dan. Uh, do you think um, uh, uh, Ari Fleischer is onto something there? Show, don't just tell. I, I do. I think it's very good advice. And the other thing he can do is deliver the traditional Oval Office speech. Now, he hasn't been good at that so far. He's only done it a couple of times, and somehow the microphone picks up his breathing and things, and it, it doesn't right. work well. But, right. but that must be just a matter of uh, rehearsing it uh, for half an hour with, with, with specialists because he's perfectly competent speaker, as we saw again yesterday. And there, I mean, you can't do it so it looks like you're trying to avoid the press, but that sort of gives authority to a recitation of things. And he could bring into his remarks uh, pictures and comments by some of the agency officials that Ari Fleischer referred to. I do think that the briefing room is useful sometimes. And I, to be fair, I don't think anyone has been more critical of the American political media than I have. But yesterday, I didn't think the questions were rude. I thought they were 
adequately respectful and respectfully posed, as they should be in any case to that to anyone who holds that office. But I, I think Ari Fleischer's idea is brilliant. I, and, but I agree with him. I think he's got a month to six weeks to make the case and hammer at home that he's had a successful policy in this and it's working. And after six weeks, there should be two more monthly revelations of declining unemployment. And then I think he's all set for a very good two-month campaign to the election day. So I, I, I think it was, uh, you know, I, I think that both Ari Fleischer's suggestion was very good, but I was very heartened that we didn't go back to those really embarrassing and unpleasant sessions that uh, that were too long and where the press absolutely disgraced themselves by the discourtesy of their questions. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say to that about the press, I, there was, I mean, what is what is the number one topic right now in the minds of Americans? It is not a debate about where the president does and does not wear masks. It's about school. Yeah. It's about schools reopening. And um, and there was not a single question about that. That's right. And look, the fact is, I assume if the White House wanted to have questions planted, it could easily do it. There are some friendly people in the media. But uh, right. look, you can't count on the so-called working press to, uh, to to get the secret right in terms of the order of, of, of issues in national importance. Uh, but the, at least they, for, they, weren't, they weren't completely outrageous questions. They weren't right. accusations right. or debating questions right. the way we were getting in the previous session. So I think it was a big improvement all around. It looked very businesslike, and it's a good start. But, I, you know, I agree with you. I think Harry Fleischer's idea is a really good idea. Yeah, look, you can, you can go too far with that, and it can look too theatrical and staged. Uh, and, and, you know, with a, with a president, you know, uh, for, you know, handing medical supplies in the yes, chain line yes, and, yes, yes. Uh, at a hospital in, in uh, Albuquerque or something. But, uh, but, but uh, fundamentally, there's a way to put this message across. It's a good message. And the Democrats and their lackeys in the media have tried to terrorize the country, even though, as has been pointed out, the, the, the danger of this, uh, of this virus now, now that we know what we do and are carefully trying to protect the vulnerable elements, the elderly and immunity challenge. <laughs> the danger is very slight, and there's absolutely no excuse in the world for not opening the schools. You uh, write in amgreatness.com in one of your recent pieces that uh, you don't believe Democrats have a winning hand. Uh, is that, and, and so uh, beyond uh, Joe Biden's competency, which is, of course, in question, um, you you delve a little bit deeper, including in terms of like, for example, the the winning hand uh, that Biden Bernie Sanders manifesto. That's not a winning hand if it's properly dissected. Uh, there's, in my opinion, not 20 percent of the country would approve that uh, altogether. I, I certain parts of it proven. I myself approve some of the uh, legal reforms. I, I, I mean, uh, the whole prosecution service has to be. Uh, uh, it has to be altered to give defendants more of a chance. It's an outrage that the U.S. has six to 12 times as many incarcerated people per capita as Canada, Australia, Britain, France, Germany, or Japan. And these prosecutors win 99% of their cases, 97% without a trial. And I get very tired of hearing even people that I basically agree with most of the time, like Sean Hannity saying the American justice system is the envy of the world. It isn't. It's regarded that the United States is known by by everyone in the world to be the world's most important country. But this justice system is not respected at all by anybody outside the U.S. borders. Uh, you also uh, suggest that um, just in terms of what the left's agenda is, it's it's obviously much more than a presidential election. It's a, 
a consummation of the takeover of America. They have all the cultural and civic institutions. They just don't have the White House and the Senate. Yeah, and, and they, they, they want to take a radical lurch to the left. I mean, let's be clear. They want open borders, come one, come all, universal Medicare for, or medical care for anyone who arrives. And uh, they, they, they want drastic tax increases on anyone above average income. They want to replace the American ethos of anyone uh, who, who doesn't have bad luck and works hard can get to great things and do well. They want to replace that with the state determining the outcomes for everybody, all regulated and, and uh, organized in an authoritarian manner by them, uh, by the, the Washington power structure. Uh, centralized and uh, and in addition, they want to make sure that the chances of the Democrats losing control of the whole government are drastically reduced by uh, uh, having a, a system of admitting people illegally in huge numbers and allowing them to vote, vote by mail, uh, harvest the votes so that you you know send in as many as you need to to win, uh, and uh, short circuit the electoral college system by assuring that whoever gets the most votes in the election wins the election. Uh, I mean, overall vote, never mind how it is in any given state. And, uh, and for good measure, they'll bring in District of Columbia as a state, giving them two more senators for sure. And you're right behind that would be packing the Supreme Court. I mean, Roosevelt tried it and, and, uh, uh, and then it didn't succeed, but then he got to name seven justices in the next few years, so it didn't matter. And, and he had a legitimate grievance. The court was striking down some of his measures. This is just a straight power grab on behalf of a move to the to, to the, to the I look. I don't want to be tendentious, uh, uh, but but to the Marxist left. I mean, this is a Marxist document. You know, it is uh, essentially an equalization of everyone's wealth and income or a drastic move in that direction. There isn't even in there, as far as I can see, the usual uh, loopholes and, and uh, sort of hidden preferments and escape hatches for their friends in Wall Street, Hollywood, and Silicon Valley. I, I think the, even, the, even the noisy Democratic rich, you know, the limousine liberals, uh, who uh, you know who love doing a, an absolute screw job on the middle class as long as they're all right, and right. can go on you know paying below the minimum wage to the illegally entered uh, people who, who mow their lawns and roll their tennis courts in Hollywood and so on. <laughs> Even these people are going to get quite a shock if this system that has been propounded in the so-called unity document between Biden and Sanders is ever uh, enacted. Yeah, well, perhaps there's a you know a handshake, unspoken agreement that uh, we'll work out those loopholes when we get in. Yeah, 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 right. so, yeah when, we, when we finally get through the committees, there'll be a, there, there'll be a special consideration for you. Yeah. yeah. He is Conrad Black, financier, columnist, and member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure's mine. Thank Thanks, you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We uh, talked about it a bit yesterday, the um, reckoning, uh, perhaps reimagining, to borrow a word, of higher education that is coming, suggesting that uh, just as we talk about uh, marquee 
names in, in business going away as a result of lockdown policies, perhaps exacerbating foundational problems those businesses had prior to the outbreak. The same is going to happen in higher ed. You're going to see colleges not run by Jane Sanders also close. And uh, Richard Vetter, who's a professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University, uh, wrote a piece about this, particular to Ohio, as sort of a case study of what might happen with uh, mid-sized colleges uh, in other states, not just Ohio. He's also a senior fellow at the Independence Institute, and he's the author of Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Professor Vetter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Well, according to uh, your write-up in Forbes, uh, you got out of Ohio U just in time. Uh, Tell us what's happening at Ohio U, at Akron, at uh, Wright State, and uh, what it may be, what it may portend for higher education in America. Yeah, what's going on in Ohio is very similar to what's going on in other states. For example, I am originally from Illinois myself, and Southern Illinois University in Carbondale is a shadow of what it was 35 years ago. Eastern, Western. Yeah, I went to Northwestern, and I went to the U of I in Champaign-Urbana, where I'm from. Take Akron University, school in northeast Ohio, sort of a Rust Belt type city, uh, the tire capital of the world for years. It's enrollment. The school there has gone down in just a matter of 30 years from about 29,000 students, 28,000 students, to uh, 17,000 or thereabouts. And it's going to go down more, 15 maybe this fall, because of the COVID-19 thing. So it's fallen almost by half or will have by this fall. And there's a school, another school just 12 miles away uh, called Kent State University, rather uh, Mm well-known state university. Uh, You can get there in 15, 16 minutes by car. And you see the same thing all over. Detroit has five state universities in the Detroit area, five. Uh, One of them, of course, is the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which is a world-renowned university. It's going to be around, I think, forever and is well endowed as well. But the others, uh, some of them, Eastern Michigan, Wayne State, so forth, uh, are struggling, and they have been struggling for years. A- Akron never recovered from having Jerry Faust as its football coach. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, and actually that's part of their problem. They got so gun-ho about football because they had, uh, you know, some years of success. They built a real fancy new football stadium there, and they spent – I don't know, $75 million, whatever it was. And uh, no one ever came to the football games uh, because the team uh, <laughs> wasn't very good after that. And, uh, and they're, paying, they're still paying the bonds. They're paying for the stadium. So, And this has happened across the country. Universities went on a building splurge 10, 15 years ago, five years ago, that they're paying for now. They figure, well, we got to to be competitive, we've got to have fancy new facilities and so on. And that's proving to be very costly and burdensome. Uh, no, I, I hear what you're saying and, and I agree with that. I mean, the, the evidence is, is pretty clear on it. Uh, the question is, how are colleges responding? I know per your piece in Forbes, uh, the, the colleges in Ohio that are in trouble are responding by cutting staff and trying to make ends meet. But also, do you see any give in terms of campus culture? 
uh, because one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are starting to question whether it's worth going into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt is because so many colleges have become political re-education camps. They're not, as you point out, they're, you're not getting a lot of marketable skills depending on your chosen course, uh, chosen area of study. And uh, you're coming back with, uh, you know, all kinds of wild leftist ideas that don't thrill a lot of parents. So uh, is there any consideration for toning down some of the hard left politics that seems to insinuate itself in all corners of campus life? Well, there's certainly on the part of some people, there's a high desire to tone it down and at least to uh, equalize things or uh, create a level playing field where people of different persuasion, political persuasion, are given a free opportunity to talk. Uh, and say things and are, are represented on campus so that the kids, when they go to a school, sure, they'll hear the far left progressive views, and uh, that's fine. They should be exposed to what those are, but they'll also hear uh, other views, uh, more conservative views, uh, the views of people who, who actually, uh, many of those views were first champion at the University of Chicago. Uh, the views of uh, Milton Friedman, for mm-hmm. example, right. uh, and his later co- uh, colleagues. And uh, the, 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 the colleges and universities are un- ignore the fact that they're wards of the state. They are utterly dependent on public support for their existence. They, they require state subsidies in the case of the public universities. They require private donations in the case of private schools like Northwestern. Uh, they're utterly dependent on outsiders. Tuition money doesn't cover the cost. So they have to be responsive to what the public wants and what the public expects. And they've too long ignored that. They've just ignored that. They, you know, we can do whatever we want. Uh, we have tenure, so we can say anything we want, do anything we want, behave as irresponsibly as we want. And then when we start to... Uh, protest speakers who have the opposite point of view and ignore the First Amendment, which is very, uh, you know, uh, 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 it's the absolute core of what colleges and universities are about, free expression. When we ignore that, we are uh, endangering our colleges and universities, and they're paying for it. And I think they ought to pay for it. I think there ought to be consequences for uh, that behavior. Absolutely. And yeah. one one other thing, and this is uh, pr- most pronounced that. Uh, one of your alma maters, University of Illinois, which is uh, foreign nationals. Uh, it's a land. Yeah, it's, it, it's a state. Right. As you know, it's a state land grant university and it's not abiding its charter by uh, displacing highly qualified Illinois students for Chinese, in particular, foreign nationals that are willing to pay and can pay full freight. I mean, a full 30 percent of the undergraduate student body at U of I now Chinese foreign nationals. Yeah, and, uh, and although that's going to bite Illinois uh, this next year or two, as uh, more as Chinese can't get into the country, and uh, again, Illinois is facing the consequences of that. And I agree with you. Uh, the taxpayers of Illinois are subsidizing that university, and they expect to have preferential right to attend there. And uh, uh, the uh, U of I said, oh, well, we can get more uh, high out-of-state tuition fees from these foreigners, uh, these Chinese in this case, and so we'll take more of them. Uh, a lot of other schools did the same thing, but yeah, you're right. Illinois is one of the leaders in the country on this, and uh, they're paying the price for that now. 
He is Richard Vetter, Distinguished Professor of Economics Emeritus at Ohio University, Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute, and author of Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Professor Vetter, thanks so much for your time. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, George Will, friend of the show, uh, though never Trumper, as most of you undoubtedly know, gave a uh, Zoom interview to uh, Washington Post Bureau Chief Susan Page recently. He was asked who he's voting for in November, and uh, this is a bit different because he was never Trumper in 2016, but he was also never Hillary, so I think he wrote somebody in. Not in 2020. Who, who do you plan to vote for in November? Biden. Oh, yes. Have you, voted, have you voted for a Democrat before? Never. First time you've ever voted for a Democrat for president. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, what kind of president does he think uh, the man who's going to get his vote will be? I think he'll be an adequate president, but then I'm much less. Uh, Donald Trump has cured me of presidential fastidiousness. Uh, I, everyone looks good now. Uh, and this, I mean, Joe Biden is an amiable, decent man, 36 years in the Senate, 34 of them on the Foreign Relations Committee. We tend to forget that foreign relations is where the presidential power is uh, largest and presidential discretion is rightly uh, at its broadest. So all this matters. Uh, I think he has a taste for talented people to have around him. So uh, it'll be a distinct improvement. That's a low bar, but uh, worth saying. Uh, As I said, I like George Will. I've been talking to him on radio programs. I've hosted for the better part of a decade. Went to school with his son, Jeff, who's a great guy. But there's something really wrong with what George Will is saying and the basis for which I think he's saying. And hopefully we'll get him back on the show to discuss it in depth and in a respectful way, but a pointed way. Because, one, the idea that Joe Biden surrounds himself with talented people. I, I mean, have you seen the manifesto he and Bernie Sanders compile, George Will? Does that fit with your policy agenda, your philosophical worldview? Come now. In addition to that, time served on a Senate committee is not the same thing as the record on that committee. I think George Will would ordinarily concede 34 years on the Foreign Intelligence Committee. How much did Joe Biden get right during his time in the Senate on that, on geopolitical matters or much of anything else? Uh, Remember, George Will and the late great Charles Krauthammer were were both wooed by President Obama in the run up to his 2008 victory as well. Because why? Because he's one of them. Ivy League educated, well-spoken, understands the vanguard class. I mean, I don't want to get into Marxist terms and ascribe them to Krauthammer or Will. But I mean, there is this elite circle in the Beltway and in positions of authority in our cultural institutions. And it has a real driver in terms of outlook that uh, trumps, pun intended, worldview, it would seem. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined 
by Ryan Streeter, who is the Director of Domestic Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. I introduce uh, you with that George Will discussion and his comments because I think it fits nicely into this piece that you wrote about 18th century economists and philosophers like Smith, Adam Smith, and Hume, and uh, this uh, intramural fighting that's going on among conservatives that you describe in your piece at law, lawliberty.org, free trade and decadence old and new. Um, you know, it's, it's more than just a policy disagreement about the use of tariffs. It really is uh, a belief, I think, that people who play by the rules get shafted by people in positions of authority who get to rewrite the rules when they don't like what the rules produce. And that, I think, is as much the divide in within conservative circles as is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the argument over neo-mercantilism. Yeah, that's right. And part, part of the reason I wrote this essay, um, in addition to the, just the fact that I think the Scottish Enlightenment uh, is a really rich time and we, we inherited a lot, even if we don't think about it consciously, we've inherited a lot from the debates that were played out during those days, which corresponded with the founding of our country. And, and a lot of our founders were involved in those debates and read and read those people and, and incorporated what they said into what we were trying to do here in the early days of the, the Republic. But I, um, in, in addition to just being interested in that, that period, I wrote it because um, there, there have been these, these um, disagreements among conservatives about what is ailing the country and what the solutions should be. And I've found within you know certain camps of Republicans, or I should say conservatives, who are are trying to articulate kind of an anti-elitist agenda, a lot of really accurate and sound diagnosis, but also uh, a tendency to propose solutions that sometimes are overly economic um, and don't get at the the underlying sort of cultural and and, and moral critique that that really is what's bothering them. Yeah, and you so know, have, uh, let, let's uh, let's let's hold it right there because I, I want to get to that. So when we come back, I want to get to the point that you make, which I think is really a key one. That the argument being made by those revolting against the establishment, even establishment conservatives, is fundamentally a moral one, and perhaps right inartfully trying to apply economic remedies to a moral problem. I, I want you to develop uh, what you uh, what you did in your piece. More with more with uh, Ryan Streeter, director of domestic policy at the American Enterprise Institute, right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show we're talking with ryan streeter he's the director of domestic policy at the american enterprise institute uh, going over his uh, thoughtful piece at lawliberty.org, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Uh, going back to 18th century, key philosophers and ec- economists of the 18th century and the discussions they had and the views that they offered, talking about Hume and Adam Smith and Ferguson. And, uh, and, and fast forwarding to present day, and before the break, we were talking about, and Ryan Streeter was making the point, that fundamentally the, the deplorables revolt against the establishment of both parties is uh, fundamentally a moral argument they're making. And Ryan, why don't you pick it up there and develop uh, your explanation of it? Yeah, sure. I mean, the the, the antecedents are, are kind of important to look at in the 18th century. Uh, this isn't purely just an academic ex- exercise. Um, most people are probably familiar with Adam Smith's name, the founder of free market economics, wrote The Wealth of Nations. Um, 
But he was writing with contemporaries like David Hume and Adam Ferguson. Uh, Adam Ferguson, I call the other Adam of the Scottish Enlightenment, was born the same year as Adam Smith and was quite quite well read in his day. They were they were concerned that um, globalization. They didn't use that term, but that was their analysis as trade with uh, from Britain with countries all around the world throughout Asia was was bringing new products into Britain. Um, it was rising. Uh, raising living standards. It was creating new opportunities for manufacturers and makers of all kinds of things in Britain to kind of up their game. And Adam Smith and David Hume were more sanguine about what was happening in the sense that they saw that it was creating new, kind of a new realm of innovation and productivity. You know, people that typically had lived at just substance wages for, for a long time were now able to apply their hand to a trade and, and make um, certain types of tools that would be used by manufacturers, and, and it, was, it was, was good for them. It was creating the habits of industriousness rather than, than the habits of sloth, which they had seen characterizing working-class people before. But they also were all concerned, and Adam Ferguson, more, more than Human Smith, that um, this rising globalization was creating a new kind of materialism, which was really eroding really important fundamentals of society, like the family, um, like the, the, the underpinnings of civil society, the church, the, the local community, and also the virtues on which the, the, the virtues that those kinds of things cultivate. And so, so they, they had a debate about whether this, this kind of trade, this globalization, this kind of openness to the world was, was a good thing for, for Britain. But where they all agreed was that this wasn't just an economic issue, this was a cultural issue, and that as living standards were rising, people still needed to be connected to their homes, to their families, to their communities, and not allow kind of the priority of the large global traders to kind of erode what was going on on the ground. And so I think that's instructive for us today because a lot of what we see uh, happening among conservative writers and policymakers is to worry about what um, decisions made, as you, you said before the break, by, by, by elites on behalf of everyone else, what that's doing um, to local communities, what that's doing to local kind of sovereignty and, and independence is, is the main concern. And I think we're having a lot of debates about the solutions. Um, we're seeing conservatives turn a little bit more inward on trade, um, become more suspicious of globalization, even supporting industrial policies like sub subsidizing manufacturing and, 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 and creating wage subsidies. That's, that's gaining traction on the right. And what I'm, what I'm saying in the piece is I think the more fundamental question is, is to see where we're agreeing uh, throughout the conservative spectrum on these, these more moral and cultural questions and sort of build the agenda from there rather than rushing to em embrace sort of economic policies that we might regret embracing 10, 15 years from now. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think we have a disagreement and it's not being fully fleshed out, which is why I think your piece is helpful to that end. It was Hume who said that, you know, as to working together, when does the real healing begin? When we start spilling our sweat, not our blood. And uh, you make the right. point that all three of the philosophers you mentioned, um, Ferguson, Hume, and Smith, they all shared a conviction that all work is valuable. And let's think about that. It seems like axiomatic and, and relatively anodyne. But, but actually, it turns out not to be in practice. When you have Republican governors, just as you do socialist governors, saying some people's work is essential and other people's work is non-essential. Uh, you're, you're an essential person. You're a non-essential person. I, I have dominion over your work. I don't have dominion over their work. You know, that's the sort of thing that um, understandably rubs people the wrong way. And you're not spilling sweat together. And thus there is no healing taking place. There is further resentment because of the arbitrariness of this. And, and to me, that's a simple example, perhaps maybe an overly simplistic one, but a real example of what the moral problem is. Yeah, that's right. That's a very good way of putting it. And I think, you know, in very practical terms today, we, we do see 
um, a diminishment of the value of work and the policy choices that not just people in Washington are taking, but that governors and state legislatures and even city councils are are taking. And so um, work should be valuable at all levels, and people at all levels of the income spectrum should feel like they have an opportunity to apply their skills in a way that betters their lives and also gives them new opportunities. And I think the, the, one of the problems that we're, we're seeing, particularly you know, in uh, middle and lower middle class kind of jobs, is that people aren't experiencing that kind of grassroots dynamism that used to just be part and parcel of the American experience. In addition, right? in addition, you were working. Yeah. In addition to that, I mean, and then I'll let you finish. But in addition to that, they're not insulated from the vagaries of uh, the real world the way that public sector employees are and have been through this pandemic, mm-hmm. for example. And that also rubs people the wrong way, getting moralized to by people who have guaranteed salaries and benefits about uh, daring to, to demand they go back to work, as in the case of teachers right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, there, there are way too many people laboring in our economy who are under strictures, which when you really look at them are just kind of kind of ridiculous. And it gets to this point that the, the 18th century writers were, I think, trying to, to do by elevating the, the dignity of work for all people. You know, things like we, we actually have non-compete agreements for hourly wage workers. You know, if you're if you're, you're flipping burgers at one fast food restaurant, you're often required to sign an agreement saying you will not leave for another fast food restaurant. Well, that's typically how people improve their wages over time is, is job hopping from one place to another. Right. We have overly restrictive licensing rules, which which prevent people with very capable skills and abilities from being able to apply their their trade without going through, you know, in some cases, a year or two of courses and spending thousands of dollars to get certified for something they already know how to do. And and that's that. These are all developments that have happened in the last like 40 years of the American economy. And the sum the sum total of this is that we we don't have the ability at the local level, not to mention the cost of housing, and not to mention the cost of permitting, for people to do things like you know someone without a college degree should be able to lease two trucks and hire six people and start a local moving company. That was really common 40 or 50 years ago, and it's it's gotten a lot less common because we've made it really really hard to do those sorts of things. And and the people who've made it hard to do those sorts of things are people who have the political power at the state house. They're the ones sitting around the boardrooms making up these rules. And it makes work much more dissatisfying. And there's, there's some pretty interesting evidence from the economic literature that when people enjoy their work and when they find fulfillment and reward at work, we're actually more productive as an economy overall. Uh, Ryan Streeter, Director of Domestic Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks. Take care. When a problem comes along, you must whip it before the grief that's not too long. The more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. Uh, a, a YouTube video that's uh, going viral. That's kind of fun. It's pretty well done. Solid parody. Solid parody that has a non-satirical point. The point being woke. You know, being a cultural Marxist, the same as being a racist. At least it turns out that uh, the two have the same positions as uh, so acted out by these two young gentlemen. When me and Brad first met, I didn't think we'd get along, but turns out we kind of agree on everything. Your, Your racial, racial identity is the most important thing. thing. Everything should be looked at through the lens of race. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Damn. We both have a lot of opinions about people of color, even though we barely know any. I say colored people, but as long as we're classifying them, <laughs> we both think minorities are a united group who think the same and act the same. And vote the same. You don't want to lose your black card. Sorry, I don't know. I just think we should roll, roll back, back discrimination laws so we can hire based on race again. Jinx, now you owe me a Coke. Hey, tell them what you told me yesterday. 
White actors should only do voices for white cartoon characters. Been saying that for years. Stick to your own. Us white people, we have so much privilege. I agree. It is a privilege to be white. Ask him about interracial dating. All I said is that black men who date white women have internalized racism, and white men that date ethnic women are fetishizing them. Guys against interracial dating now. Like, am I being pranked? Did Boomer put you up to this? Ugh, you know that taco place is white-owned? White people should be making white foods, like Kraft macaroni and cheese, no seasoning, not even salt. It's like he's a mind reader. I mean, I've been pushing for segregation forever, and my man does what? I created an improv comedy show exclusively for ethnic people. Guy segregates comedy on my birthday. <laughs> I, I like the Bosom Buddies routine they do there with one guy wearing a T-shirt that says woke and the other guy wearing a T-shirt that says racist. Uh, yeah, isn't it, though? Those that um, accidentally or perhaps... Not accidentally, but regardless, so tied up in identitarian politics that they end up promoting white supremacy, as we saw with the National History of African American National Museum of uh, African American History and Culture, as we talked about earlier in this week, that remarkable posting that they had on their website, which they ultimately took down. And then uh, those who are promoting the agency of black Americans and opportunity for black Americans and the same choices for black Americans, particularly poor black Americans that rich white people have when it comes to things like where their kids have an opportunity to be educated. Those uh, black conservatives promoting, for example, school choice. And there's a good write up by Jason Riley on Thomas Sowell, one of the preeminent uh, black conservatives and preeminent economists of the last hundred years in uh, a good write-up by Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal and him. That they're the Uncle Toms, they're the sellouts, and the white people who are promoting the same sort of uh, leveling of the playing field. They're the ones who are trying to keep minorities down, trying to marginalize marginalized populations. It's the same conversation we had about uh, the ghouls at Planned Parenthood earlier in the show. It's the same conversation we had about Chicago violence. It's always the same with the cultural Marxist left. They have perfected this idea of projecting or this approach of projecting onto others who they actually are. And so, uh, you know, when you hear the woke and the racist talk, but particularly the woke, who's the uh, subterranean racist, just remember it's a rubber and glue. It's a rubber and glue with them. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.